In season three of Franchise Findings, we're going to continue to dive in on the financial numbers, unit openings, franchise costs, franchise profitability on some of the emerging franchise brands in the United States, as well as the established players. Tune in to our next episode. Hey, you have Patrick Pindaro, co-founder of Vetted Biz. Very excited to have on Robert Purvin. He's an accomplished franchise attorney, as well as the chairman and founder of the American Association of Franchisees and Dealers. Uh, he's also the author of Franchise Fraud, a book that was originally published in the 90s. And a lot of the themes that he wrote about in that book, Franchise Fraud, have really played out today across some very large franchise systems as well as emerging franchise systems. So today's conversation, we're going to talk about Robert's trajectory in the franchising industry, um, how he's seen it evolved over the years, and just to get further insights on how franchisees can go about selecting the right franchise system to join and be a part of. Thanks, Robert. My pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So if you don't mind, um, I'd love for you to tell me a little bit about how you entered into to the franchise space and what attracted you to it originally. Uh, that, that's a pretty long story, but I've actually been involved in <laughs> franchising since I commenced my uh, practicing law back in 1973 and uh, happened to go to work for a firm that did a lot of franchise work. Uh, my path to become exclusively franchising uh, it's sort of a, a hilarious story, but uh, I, I don't want to waste a, a lot of our important time with, with that. But, uh, but I've been involved with, with franchising almost since the inception of franchise regulation to the extent that franchising is a regulated industry. And I started practicing in 1973 in the first franchise law, which was California's franchise where, where I happened to practice, uh, went into effect, I think, in 1972. I believe I was in, involved as counsel in the very first lawsuit ever filed under the California Franchise Investment Act. And at that time I was on the franchise or side of the ball uh, representing Carvel Corporation. When 34 of the 35 franchises that they opened in California all went out of business and they, they brought a, a, a group action and, and I had the interesting experience of representing Carvel Corporation in that as junior counsel, I was saying I was, I was, uh, still wet under the wet behind the ears at the time. And what made you switch from being more on the franchise or side to representing franchisees, whether it's single unit operators, franchise associations, or, or franchisee, like well, multi-unit franchisees? I actually tell that story in my book. It, it was over time in the first, I don't know, 15 years of my practice, I was really a developer and I was writing these egregious franchise agreements. And the only negotiation was me talking to my clients. Said, you think somebody will actually sign that if I put that in the contract? But I did find numerous circumstances of what I considered to be franchise or abuse. And uh, over time I had clients come in um, and I discovered that when I, when I had a group of clients with a similar uh, story, a similar, that, that, that our ability to balance the power, the economic power to, to challenge it. Um, and that really became a theme in my practice. Uh, maybe fast forwarding to a, a question that I'm expecting you to ask me rather than one you've put to me. But uh, in 1977, a group of clients came to me and said, gee, we know about the International Franchise Association, but who represents the franchisees of the world? And uh, that led to the birth of the AAFD. Wow. 
So yeah, as many in the industry know, IFA, there are franchisees that are part of it, franchise suppliers, franchisors, but as we've seen recent hearings in the Senate, it does seem largely favoring the, the franchisors and, and their objectives. Um, and then it seems like the AAFD is more of the counterbalance for, for franchisees. Well, the interesting part of that is the IFA did not have franchisee memberships until 1994 in response to our starting. Um, actually, I guess they started in 1993. And we have or members that don't have voting rights and franchisee members in the IFA really don't have voting rights either. Um, and uh, if, if you ever go to a, a, a congressional hearing and you see an IFA franchise-supported franchisee, it's like he's spouting the franchisor's uh, legal position. So they do have their favorites. And what were the key findings in your book, Franchise Fraud? Well, my book really is not about fraudulent practices of franchisors. It's, the, the title of the book is The Franchise Fraud. And, and the premise of the book is that the franchising industry as a whole has perpetuated a false and um, untrue image of what franchising is. Uh, the, the premise of franchising is that then and now is that franchising is a safe and secure path to uh, for business ownership uh, that reduces your odds of failure and increases your odds of success. When I wrote the book, um, my conclusion was that that was a lie, that franchising then and now is not business ownership. It's not entrepreneurial at all. You, you, in fact, uh, many franchisors will put out a sign that say entrepreneurs need not apply because they want you to follow their system. Uh, they want you to, uh, which I'm not saying that that's bad, but but it's not true business ownership. And that in most instances, uh, franchisees are governed by a franchise agreement that is far more controlling than any employment agreement you and I have ever read. Um, so. The idea that franchising is um, business ownership was false. The idea that it was a safe path to business ownership. At the time we wrote the book, there was data coming out, which I only knew anecdotally, uh, that, that told you that franchises fail at a faster pace than independent startups. That remains the, the, the case today, by the way. That's not to say you can't, if you find a good franchise, um, I tell a story exactly. in my book like about- Exactly, like the top 10% of franchises perform much better than the average for businesses that are failing, but you get down to the bottom part of franchises and it's kind of like that Carvel uh, client that you represented where it's like 80, 90% of the system's closing well, after the, five years. The interesting thing about Carvel is that they had a huge market share in New York and huge market share in Florida. Um, but they came out to California, nobody had, had ever heard of them, and they didn't have any name gravitas at all, and people just fell flat on their face. So that's the other part about, about franchising is the, the strength of that trade name. I tell a story in my book to take any of the big uh, directories of franchises, and I know you publish one, and I said you can close your eyes and stick a pen in any page, and the likelihood of your knowing that, that brand is one out of t one out of ten. So um, well said. <laughs> I did a in my book. I did a study of the entre of the entrepreneur five hundred, which which is supposed to be the five hundred best franchise. And every time I go on LinkedIn, there's like all these franchises tagging that they're part of that list. <laughs> exactly. And by the way, when when my book came out, entrepreneur used to publish. Um, what the rankings were. Well, they still publish what, what the rankings are, but what they had a point system that they assigned. 
And, and, okay. and I analyze that point system. It's a very interesting read in, par in chapter four of my book. Um, so they, there were 1,295 franchises that they, that they looked at out of about 1,500 at the time. There's probably 4,000 franchises today, uh, maybe more than that. Um, they graded 1,250 of them or 1,290 of them. There was a potential of, of uh, I think it was 1,500 or 15,000 points you could get. And then they, they took all the franchises that they graded and the top 500 points made it to their franchise 500. So in 1993, um, McDonald's got the highest grade and I think they got 15, almost 15,000 points. Okay. Um, what do you think the number 500 made their list? How many points that company got? Uh, I would, if, if before you prefacing how they, how this uh, was conducted, I would say like 2000, but maybe it's like 13,000. Yeah. It was 64 points. Huh? Wow. Okay. <laughs> so that's a big, okay. uh, it's uh it really is. I mean, the idea that, that, that you would be one of the 500 best when you had 15,000 fewer points than, than McDonald's did, uh, was, was bizarre. And what was also interesting <laughs> is that of the 1,200 um, companies that there was only 50 companies, I think it was, and maybe it was 50 or 100, that got over 1,000 points. It was a hmm. very small universe of, of franchisors that really made it, even if you looked at the, and of course, after that, entrepreneur stopped publishing the point rank, rankings, which well, I take full there's, credit. There's you know, a big agency issue with any media company where how do you, how do you finance your, your company? And it's much easier to do some lead generation and, and do promotions for all the franchisors on that 500 list than asking the viewers to pay $5 to access that list. Right, well, for sure. But uh, it was, that was very, very revealing and, and by the way, entrepreneur and most of, most of the lists of franchises, franchise times has a list of, they're all based upon unit sales. Um, and they're not based upon profitability. They're not based, they're certainly not based upon profitability of the franchisee. Um, Do you think at the, at the least, like I've seen it's mostly total unit sales. It's not even done at the unit level and there's no comparison to the investment amount to get to that unit level. Exactly. Exactly. That, that, that could be like, I, I think the ideal one is, yeah, what's the profitability, what's the payback period, but even getting halfway there would be helpful for a prospective franchise buyer. For, for, for sure. That's so the, the, so the premise of my book was that the franchising industry had misrepresented franchising as a whole. Um, and, and I was literally the whistleblower on that fact. Um, I wasn't the only whistleblower, but that, I was the only published w whistleblower at, at that point, because at, right at the time my book came out, there were two significant academic studies that came to exactly the same conclusions that I had come to anecdotally. And were people like super upset with you? Did you have franchisors reach out or kind of what was the, the impact from those, the, the publication of the franchise fraud? Well, Initially, I mean, the, the book was very well reviewed and um, I got a lot of what would be po positive reviews. It was before all, all the Amazon reviews, although now they're on Amazon. Didn't get a lot of pushback that I recall from from the franchising world. 
Um, I did have a few invitations to actually speak at IFA functions, which I found fascinating because I could sense coming into the room that I was, you know, they were looking for the horns that I was wearing and that I was the enemy. And when, when I walked out, I, I think I had some people re realizing that uh, having happy franchisees was probably not that bad an idea. Um, and uh, so because of, at, at, the, at our core, the AFD has been about amalgamating the collective strength of franchise owners so that they have negotiating parity at the negotiating table. One of the big problems with franchising, it's a take it or leave it opportunity. And you, an individual franchisee has very little opportunity to, to actually negotiate a franchise agreement. But if you have a franchise association that has economic power, now you have a whole different animal. The, the, the good news is that the companies that sit down and negotiate their franchises have happier franchisees and they tend to be happier enterprises and that's something that, that uh, we continue to hope to, um, to provide a, a path to. And then now that we've become actually more involved with on the legislative side of things, I don't want to call, say it's a secret motive, but our ulterior motive for our supportive legislation is to get more franchisors to say, rather than to be um, restricted by legislative efforts, let's sit down and negotiate with our franchisees and let's make our own rules that we can all be happy with. And it seems like, especially those first time entrepreneurs that are essentially lending a business model, it's not their own business. They're, they're renting this business model for 10 years with the brand. They, th this might be their most expensive purchase besides their primary home. And I see that's the majority of franchise buyers. And then you do also have on the other scale, the sophisticated franchisees that are going to open up 30 locations, sell to private equity in five years. And they have experience working with many attorneys, negotiating contracts. So I, I see those that you can give good value to those two types of franchisees, but especially the first time franchisee um, that's really hasn't done such a big purchase or ever signed a contract for something over a year. Now that that's very true. Uh our uh, major level of supporter with the, the mom and pop and, and, and the small franchisees, the, the guys that have negotiating leverage probably need an organization like the AFD less, although I will tell you we count n numerous multi-unit franchisees amongst our, our, our members because they recognize they're stronger together and that, they, and that they're able to, to share uh, best practices with each other. But the, when I wrote my book, the, and I talk about this in the book, the dichotomy is between hotel franchises and everything else. And the guys that owned hotels, you know, hired, you know, powerful attorneys themselves. They were landed people with lots of money. And, and as a consequence of that, hotel franchises tended to be, uh, at that time, it, it changed a, a, a bit because of a company called Sindant, Sindant which is now, well, I forget who, who has actually acquired them. At this point, I guess it's Wyndham um, took the hotel model and made it look like McDonald's. And um, McDonald's is a very interesting situation too, because McDonald's has one of the worst franchise agreements I've ever seen. But but culturally, McDonald's has always treated its franchisees with a higher level of of inclusion and respect. And as a consequence, um, the contract becomes less important. 
Well, yeah, exactly. Like, so the contract could be there and it could be super one-sided that if the franchise agreement breaks, the franchisee is going to have to pay, you know, the remainder of royalties, whatever that minimum royalty is, a thousand, three thousand dollars a month for the next 20 years. But in practice, like what percentage of franchisors are going to have that and be that aggressive versus, okay, you put in two years, it didn't work. Let's annul this agreement. Uh, we both tried and let's go our separate ways. Well, if you if you were allowed to go your separate way, your franchise agreement says that you can't for two years. Um, you, you can't apply that, apply the trade that we've trained. It, it's a very interesting dichotomy because when you go to work for somebody and they pay you while you're being trained and they pay for your training, um, and most states have a right to work law that says that if you leave that position, you can take your education with you and do what you've been doing. Your franchise agreement, where you pay for the training and you pay the, for, for the capital, says the exact opposite. If you decide you're going to leave us, at least for two years, you cannot compete with us. Uh, you have to take down your signs. If you're allowed to uh, stay in business, you have to take down your signs. You have to completely rebrand yourself. So it, it's really um, the, the when you compare the investment, and I want to say something you said a minute ago, when we talk and we may talk about the explosion of private equity in the franchising space right now, but a franchisee tends to make a bet the farm investment in a franchise. And yes. you're right. It's sometimes it's more than the house and sometimes it's right behind the house. Um, but more and more franchisors don't have, they're, they're in it for two years. And if, if, a, if private equity goes in and buys a franchise system, more often than not, that French, that private equity company is looking for a quick entrance and exit, um, and sometimes squeezing I've out as much as profit low as, they as can. quick as eighteen months, yes. two years. Where traditionally a hold time could be like five years, but a lot of these franchise systems are traded in, in, in shorter frequencies. It, it, that's been a big concern when uh, early on when I was starting. There was a slightly different issue. That is still that is still there. So you would have a franchisee who'd been in the business for ten or fifteen years on Main Street, knowing what the problems of the business, being counseled by somebody just out of business school uh, for two or three years that has never had any experience in running in running a business, telling you uh, how you're supposed to run yours. And do you see that changing, like in the in the future, there being less founder-led organizations? and more ones that are, are publicly traded or even private equity. I think there's, at this time, there's about 40 or so franchisors that are publicly traded. And you have like micro cap companies that their their market cap's 10, 10 million. And then on the other spectrum, uh, billions of dollars at the Marriott, Hilton, McDonald's level. Well, the, the number of mega franchisors as a as a percentage of the universe of of companies selling franchises is still very small. Um, It's probably less than 3%. I haven't done that math, but that's what it was when, when I wrote my book, Uh, the the mega franchisors. So, and, and the uniqueness of franchising like, well, it has great advantages even over capital markets. If you have access as a, as an issuer of stock or a seller of franchises, uh, you probably don't have access to capital markets um, because of the restrictions of the regulation of those markets. But in franchising, you can start up with nothing 
uh, as long as you give a disclosure document to a prospective franchisee that, that says you have nothing, um, you can raise capital from day one. So there's a, there still is a significant number of franchise opportunities out there that um, are startups. And the- uh, They don't even have a corporate location. You've had foreign entities enter the US market instead of seeding with like five to 10 corporate locations or even a new market where you have franchisors that will jump in and with corporate locations, which I think is responsible, a franchisor expanding from Florida to Texas, test out the market, then start franchising. But you, you've had you know fifty plus uh, brands that don't even have a corporate location, and they're taking on uh, largely unsophisticated consumers to be kind of the guinea pigs of this model that hasn't even been proven. Well, and boy, I could tell you stories about that too. Because uh, yes, there are people that will fall in love with a concept, fall in love with with even a brand, and jump in without any um, justifiable reason. I have personal experience. I actually started a fast food concept that the 31 flavors of fried wontons, but um, many years ago, and I could never make the the um, the program work. It was lost hundreds of thousands of dollars in, in the enterprise, but I must have had a list of 100 people that wanted to buy franchises because they wow. love the product. They love they love the, the concept. But economically, if I and I could have sold them the, those franchises, but I, I could not until I had proof of concept by having a group of stores, which, which we never achieved. So, but, but, but your point is that people will fall in love with, with the brand. Sometimes it's the opposite. Let's say I wanted to own a McDonald's and couldn't afford it. So I buy it buy a Joe's burger um, franchise because that's what I can afford. That's option. And um, missing the whole, the whole concept that there, that, that Joe didn't have any market power. Uh, so, um, but, but franchising can still be a power is a powerful when it's done right, but there are two elements to what you need to look for. I know we're going to get there. One is the brand. Does the brand going to grab customers and uh, customer acquisition through just the brand? Well, it's both customer acquisition and the profitability of, of the product and the service. That's one side of it. The other side of it is the contract. And am I becoming indentured in a way that I own something or I have any equity interest at all? Um, and too often people make that emotional investment because they like the product um, and don't realize that they are indenturing themselves, enslaving themselves, if you like, to a, an agreement that is just totally unfair. And, and that's the part that, that, that we have mainly focused on. And it's interesting because I've even seen some recent concepts like um, with Chick-fil-A or Steak and Shake where it's you're, you're basically a high paid uh, manager. And that's great for many people, but you don't want to enter that path thinking you're the business owner because you're not going to make millions of dollars when you sell your 50% of the Chick-fil-A or 50% of the Steak and Shake and... Uh, I think a lot of people get into it, into these uh, concepts thinking they're going to make a lot of money one day in the future on the exit where it's really just an income replacement. And if that's what you're looking for, that, that can be great. And that's fine. Well, I, I think you're, you're right. And, but there are companies, McDonald's is one of them, uh, but, but not because you have a right to the equity. McDonald's has culturally created a resale 
opportunity within their network. So if you own a McDonald's, you're going to sell it to another McDonald's dealer. You're not going to sell it to, to some, you're not going to put it on the open market. But um, if the franchisor has given the uh, the blessing, if you like, for you to resell, there there can be a resell opportunity. But, for, but you're right, in most instances, uh, the, the market for a resale of a franchise is, uh, is very discouraging. And there's some industries that particularly the, the resale value is significantly higher, especially if it's like repeat customers, like an insurance franchise, a property management franchise, where you should get your money back and more. But then there's other concepts where we go through the numbers and we look on websites like BizBen in California or BizBuy Sell Nationwide, where for that franchise, initial cost, the midpoint might be a 200K and you see a bunch for sale at 80K, 90K. And that's like a huge red flag that if people aren't at least recouping their money back, because you have to incorporate all that sweat equity, then there's a big issue with uh, probably that franchise model. Well, it, even if the model were good, if even if it had been a good job for you, if the company prevents the, uh, the any true equity, it, you can't convert at the end of the of the time. You can't convert. I mean, there are there are huge exceptions, um, but there are exceptions that I used to get interviewed by Smart Money Magazine, and they wanted to have my top ten. And so, of course, at the top was the New York Yankees. Uh, <laughs> they said, well, that's not what we meant. And I said, okay, but then the Budweiser distributorship. And I said, uh, no, no, you're still there. And I said, actually, Budweiser takes second place to Coca-Cola because Coca-Cola has a bigger market than, than Budweiser. And the interesting thing is, is, is that if you look at the data on franchising, you will see that 80% of the billion, hundred trillions of dollars in revenue coming from franchising come for what, from product franchisors as opposed to what we call business format franchisors. The IFA likes to talk about all the hundreds of billions of dollars, but 80% of those funds still come from uh, beverages, automotive, um, and uh, alcoholic beverages and soft beverages really dominate the, the, the retail sales, even today with, with thousands of, of companies in the business format space. <clears throat> That's interesting. So you hear a lot about these service brands and, and business format, but they are still a very small sliver of the, the franchise or license pie. Well, it's becoming more and more. I mean, fast food was what, you know, gave franchising its name. And at the AFD, we have we support uh, north of 50 chapters right now. Only two of them are in the fast food space. Our, hmm. our biggest segment right now is and it, and it changes over time but right now our business segment is in the home care industry we probably we support i think five or six chapters in in the senior care and home care uh how, how is that industry I, I see the top line revenue the average unit volume when you consider the investment amount is probably the best i've seen for an industry where you have brands that it's like 100k to open and they're doing sales of 600 700k do you see the franchisees also having a nice profitability and bottom line for, for that industry? So from, from my lens, it's very, very different. And it's, it's really brand, brand specific, not industry specific. And sure. there are brands within that industry that I think are very good economic investments and others that are struggling. Nice. And they tend to struggle based upon the, uh, the control aspect of the franchisor. 
um, and whether or not the franchisor allows franchisees to grow and grow their equity. So, um, and when you mean by control, is, is it the franchisor restricting them in terms of where they can grow and, and, and send caregivers or could you elaborate a little bit more on that control space, that control, uh, aspect? <clears throat> so there's a, uh, I'm debating whether or not I should be giving names here, but, um, there, we have a bright star care chapter of the AFD that has been a very successful brand. And a lot of these people have multi-units and the multi-unit guys had too much voice, I guess. And then the company decided a couple of years ago, when you went to sell your franchise, that you couldn't sell the bundle of them. You had to find an individual investor for each one. And, uh, and then that just kills the valuation. Yes, exactly. Because if you're, exactly right. if you're selling a, a business that does like a million dollars in, in earnings, it could go for five to 10 times that. But if you have to piecemeal it all, it could go for two or three X. Yes. It, it, so that, that that's an issue. And then Subway itself has had uh, waves of time where you could bundle or, or couldn't bundle uh, your franchises. And Subway is an interesting uh, animal because a lot of the control of the Subway are their area developers. So you can have some areas of the world where the area developers are very good with their franchise franchisees and others where they're very restrictive. And that's been a problem with, with that, with that brand and the a totally different area. There are two competitors, one called Valpac and the other one called money mailer that you probably are used to by getting uh, advertising mailings. Valpac is very centralized and has uniformity of, of uh, support within nationwide within its own, its franchise owners. Whereas money mailer is very controlled by the area developers. And there are some money mailer areas that are terrific and others that are just disasters. So uh, all franchises are not uh, created equal. And where is that dictated? Like in the franchise agreement or the FDD, like if someone that's looking and of course they should have a franchise attorney help them, but where is that dictated? Like how is someone going to know like, okay, I'm going to open up five subway restaurants i want to be able to sell these five to a prospective buyer how are they going to know in the agreement if they can or, or can't well the agreement's going to tell them if if they have rights to sell um and but really culture is going to tell them that and the only way you can okay. discover that is it, but really the fdd is not going to tell you that we are uh uh, very difficult to tr to allow you to transfer. The FDD is not going to say that. The FDD is just going to parrot exactly the language of your franchise agreement. So uh, what you're going to need to make sure, and this would be my cardinal rule, is the first question a franchisee should ask is, is there an independent owners association that look out for the interests of franchisees, not a franchise advisory council that is controlled by the franchisor or handpicked by the franchisor, but an independent association that is out there not only providing me the reality the, of of what the information is, but it actually has negotiating leverage to make a difference at, over time. And I will tell you that if you look, if you do a, a study of those brands that have franchisee associations, um, and particularly brands that have chapters of the AFD, you're going to find significantly fairer, more balanced, even if the agreements don't merit being our accreditation, our fair franchising seal, um, almost all of our chapters get a tick up uh, because just because they have the power to do so.
How did you come up with this idea of having um, chapters per franchise and then helping give insights and, and benefits across all, all, all the associated members? So the AFD chapter program is really the center of what we do. Um, we are dedicated, AFD is dedicated to fair and balanced franchise organizations or, or franchise uh, franchising. Um, but our key pillar to accomplish that has been our chapter program. Secondarily, it's focused on, on legislation advocacy and, and regulatory advocacy. Um, I wish I could tell you when we started and we wrote our first five-year plan that we had any idea. We did have ideas of chapters, but they were going to be a Dallas chapter and a San Diego chapter and a DC chapter. Yeah, no geography one was interested. like everyone else. No, no franchisees were not at all interested. Uh, the, the, the development of our, what we call our trademark specific chapter program came up when a group of Western temp franchisees invited me to uh, a meeting, a, a group of them were having in, in the San Francisco area and we're sitting around a conference table and they said, can you help us form an association? And I, and I looked up and I said, you know what, if you guys all join the AFD, I'll just create a Western temp chapter. And in that moment, what became the heart and soul of our association came into existence. Fast forward three years, everything was about chapters. And 30 years later, we just celebrated on May 1st of this year was our 30th anniversary. We now support um, north of 50 chapters. We have a whole lot of chap. Most groups that come to us, come to us in crisis. And so when the crisis absolves, either we solve the problem or don't solve the problem. But like the crisis, crisis basically getting screwed over by the franchisor. Well, it could be that it could be <laughs> it could be E. coli getting into your food yeah. supply. Right. So um, but uh, but whatever it is, if the, when the crisis subsides uh, too often, we lose that that group fades into the woodwork. So we've over the years set up hundreds of chapters, but we, we have 50, about 50, 55 groups that, that have uh, chapters. Our goal is to have 4,000 chapters, all for representing all the franchises in the United States. Uh, we actually have some, we have one chapter that doesn't have any U.S. franchisees. They're all outside of the U.S. Um, but uh, so we have, we have members from all over the world. But, but mainly we're, we're domestic and um, the, the chapter program has become uh, the heart and soul of what it is we do. And internally, each of those chapters goal is a great marriage with their franchisor. They're not looking to get divorced. They're not that. And, and when we get that point across to franchisors that happy franchisees make for happy franchise systems and more profitable franchise systems. More enjoyable and you make more money, and, right? And you have something at the end of the day that you can turn around and sell. So if, if a franchisor promotes, uh, and, and again, McDonald's is an example of this. Um, McDonald's is an interesting story because McDonald's was founded by Ray Kroc and the original franchisees were his golfing buddies at the Whispering Palms or whatever the the, the the golf club, and they were all richer than he was. So as a so culturally, from day one with McDonald's, there was a culture of collaboration. There was a culture of of respecting the needs, um, and that culture has continued even as their contract is becoming more and more more and more restrictive. What would you say are like? a couple of simple steps that franchisors can incorporate to have just a better culture 
across their franchise system? Well, being wise enough to recognize that um, that I'm going to allow my franchisees to be organized so that we have um, so that we are coming as equals and being negotiable in in that in that regard. Um, th- that's the the first thing I tell a prospective client when they come to me is that if does is the franchise or have an ec- a, a mechanism, and usually it's an independent association that you have dialogue. So that that's really, I have a, um, in my book, I have eight cri- business criteria that a franchisee should, a prospective franchisee should look at. We've now created a tool. It's called a franchise ev- evaluation tool um, that you get with any membership in the AFD where you grade these eight, eight criteria. But at the top of those eight criteria, number one, didn't used to be number one, it used to be number three, but number one is, are we represented by a common uniform voice so that we have negotiating leverage? The second criteria, it, 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 it's going to stun you because you would just assume, does the company have a quality product to sell? <laughs> you know? yeah. You'd be surprised at the people that buy something that, uh, and then the, 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 and these are just business things. Is there something really that there's a, that, that there's a market for? And then and there's product market fit. Yeah, so you right. have franchise systems that don't have a product market fit. Well, and there and there are there there are companies that that have. I mean, who would buy that, right? But <laughs> there was a, a a guy that came to me that wanted to start a franchise, and he did, and he sold franchises, and his product was, uh, what was it called? It was called licorice Icelandic. What it was was a licorice mint that disguised alcohol in your breath. It did not count, <laughs> contravene the alcohol. And he wanted to, fran- that's, that's his whole product, was that you could buy them at the bar as you left and it would, it, when you got stopped by the police, it would disguise wow. you. And he was selling franchises, but anyway, that's another story. Um, <laughs> so the, the third criteria that I, w- I wanted to mention is that franchising is the predominant, if not the exclusive me- means of product and service distribution for my brand. And so if I'm in, I don't want my franchisor to be in competition with me. And so yeah, many are. And there's, there's a lot of um, franchisors like Panda Express, I believe Mod Pizza, First Watch, Texas Roadhouse, where they're developing so many corporate locations and franchisees by the years are really representing a, a smaller sliver to that total unit. Well, you remember Radio Shack. Uh, well, actually, yeah, I can even tell you a better they story. They closed than, one than, of the last locations around the Miami area. Well, Radio Shack was famous for the fact that you that if you were they were offering it as a franchise, it was a tertiary market. All of their hmm. big markets were, but the most Stanley Steamer is one that that um, that we've. That's one that we had a chapter and the their issue sort of went away and the, the chapter dissolved. But Stanley Steamer had a deal whereby you had to pay, you know, most franchisors, 5% of your gross revenues into the marketing fund. And they put all their marketing fund into television advertising in all the major markets. Well, all the major markets were company-owned stores. So all of this money was going in. It was going into advertising and probably tangentially because they were national ads, the, the small guys got it. But the small guys were paying for the company-owned stores advertising market uh, and that was their number one issue. The uh, And I know there's some franchisors that, I mean, they're getting that marketing 
N and they're using it for like lead generation for oh. new franchisees, which that does not help directly. You know, that will help the brand later on, but that that's not the most effective use of, of marketing spend well, if you're trying to sell more product. And we have we have one very prominent chapter, and I think I'll withhold the, the, the name, but it's in a service sure. industry. And the um, they have a, a lead generation fund that they pay, pay into, which is supposed to, you know, an 800 number that's supposed to result in leads coming back to them. But the franchisor takes those leads Packages them up and sells a new franchise in competition with the guy who paid for the leads. That's um, pretty bad. And it's uh, this is the type of thing that uh, that requires a, a, a powerful body of countervailing force uh, that gives rise to the need for an organization like the American Association of Franchises. Well, I had a guest on the founder of Franchise Business Review, and, and he, he said the number one question: Do you trust the franchisor? And if you don't trust, then it's like, why do you not trust them? Well, and, you know, my issue with the with most of the review companies and the, the franchise business review, I think, is, does as good as as I've seen. But they're, all they're doing is measuring a point in time. And if the CEO of the company on that day is trustworthy, that doesn't mean that the guy that replaces him will be trust trustworthy. So my, my problem with with all of the survey companies is that they're not grading the contract. If the contract doesn't have in it a requirement of that um, of trustworthiness, then it, you're just up to whoever happens to be controlling the strings on that given on that given day. And if your contract does not bind you to r certain rights, including a right of exit. If the new CEO is going to be a jerk, and I'm cleaning, I'm cleaning up all my language right now. But uh, if he's going to be, if the CEO is going to be a, a jerk about it, um, it can change everything in a heartbeat. That's well said. I mean, at Vetted Biz, we struggle with this because we are mining data from the franchise disclosure documents, and we collect it through public resources, our network, and every year we're, we're doing a big batch. Like we've started so far with the 2022, uh, this month and the next month with the 2022, but I want to build in more APIs where it's like recent franchise complaints, recent franchise reviews, ongoing litigation that's happening that it's not just one point in time, like every year, but on an ongoing basis. But w the work that you're you're working on on, on the contract side, um, it's something that it's kind of set, and it could be there for a year, ten years. But everyone needs to know that the contract is this way. Well, our our biggest challenge, and it's one we're about to to to, to refocus on right now, is imagine that there was a body of standards, um, fair franchising standards that that the industry could embrace. There are the American Association of Franchisees Fair Franchising Standards that we've spent 15 years building on through collective bargaining. And now imagine that a group of companies uh, have a contract that respects those standards. And the, the, those and that the franchisees of those companies have voted for the company to get earn the AFD fair franchising seal. Well, we have all of that in place and we have 18 brands and that's, that's where our problem is that 18 brands do not drive the marketplace. We need to have 1800 brands. But imagine we have a situation where you cannot go to market without having the AFD 
accreditation behind you, much like the UL symbol or the CE symbol in any piece of electronics that you buy, that you wouldn't think about going to market or could not go to this market. It sounds like the new Entrepreneur 500. Well, it's, this is it, like that, that emblem, you got to have it yeah. or you're, you're but, not even a franchise. The, the difference is that the Entrepreneur 500 is not based upon the, either the vote or any criteria. Of, it's not based on anything, but that, that's the current right. accreditation. That's my point that you, you're, you want to bring on a legitimate accreditation that consumers should know about. Right. And there's all this fluff out there that doesn't mean anything. Well, we have 18, the, the, the problem that we have is that to earn AFD accreditation is an expensive process. We have to, we have to first evaluate a detailed grading of the franchise agreement against the AFD standards. Then we put together a focus group of franchise owners and they go through, and we have 140 standards that we've adopted, but they grade the company's actual practices. So, the FBR. The culture part. Yeah. That the, you the, can't the, get from the contract. So we grade the walk and they grade the talk. And interestingly enough, in most of our grading, franchisors outperform their agreement. The, the, it, the reality is that most franchisors are trying to do it right. And that what the contract says they can do is not their actual, their actual practice. Exactly. Um, They're not going to hold is a good franchisee. Thing. They're going to allow them to sell their five units to the best buyer. It, well, and, and most franchisors, I mean, I can't say most, but a, but a significant number of franchisors care about their franchisees. And it's, I also find it interesting of the 18 brands that we've accredited over the years, um, four of those brands were headed by CEOs who had been chairman of the IFA. Hmm. Um, and so Meineke, uh, Ken Walker at Meineke, Meineke was already accredited. Uh, Dick Rennick at American Leak De Detection had already been chairman of the IFA. Um, and uh, Steve Romanello, uh, who took U.S., which was a hotel franchise, uh, Microtel. And uh, so, but I found it very interesting that, that the companies that, that we felt were doing it right also were being honored by the IFA for, I think, doing it right as well. Yeah, across the aisle. So, um, when we first came out with our standards, the IFA ordered 100 copies when the book first first came out, which was in 1996, I want to say. Um, and the um, they came back and gave it really high marks. With the, the one exception being, it was really interesting that that we called for collective bargaining of franchise agreements and. The comment we got is that, you know, that just, you know, went over like a lead, a lead balloon, but said, really, it's just the, the word collective bargaining. If you could change it to joint negotiation, we'd like probably be okay with it. So, yeah. uh, but, but really the AFD, that's what we stand for. We, we, we are trying to achieve a situation where franchise agreements become bargained for negotiated balanced agreements that serve the need, the legitimate business needs of both franchisors and franchisees. And we think they make for happier marriages. And uh, if you look at the companies that have earned our accreditation, they all sort of prove that out. They tend to be industry. You, could I add a link like in the in the call notes to, is there a, a list of these 18 posted on the AAFD website? I, I believe they are. The, the problem is we went through a period of time where we were not recertifying companies. So, oh, okay. so we, we may have, have uh, so 
uh, accreditation is good for three years and then you have to recertify because we have to make sure you are still offering the same deal that you've done. And then over the last uh, nine or 10 years, um, we've been really focused on chapter growth. So I think it's still there, but I'm at, it's been a while since I looked. So I'll have to, I'll have to uh, get back to you on that one. But we can provide Including, that. Including uh, our conversation today, um, any tips for for franchisees that are are interested in forming an independent organization? Hopefully, before that crisis that they're having in the, with their franchise. So there is, I will say boldly, and understanding that I have a vested interest in what I'm about to say, there is sure. no easier more efficient, cost-effective way to start an owner's association than to simply form a chapter of the AFD. It's like Rotary International, except for the clubs that we're forming are not local chapters. They're, they're all based upon a trademark group. We have five chapters starting this week uh, for, for, for brands. And one of the brands happens to be in the Central Florida area, only has 14 franchises. So it, it's incredibly easy to start an AFD chapter. Uh, nobody has to write a big check. The The alternative would be to go to uh, hire a lawyer, form a corporation, a nonprofit corporation, and, and uh, somebody would have to f finance that, that starting. But when you start a chapter of the AFD, literally, if you've got five members and a steering that form a steering committee, we'll create your chapter for you. And everybody just pays dues. So it's uh, great. I can boldly say that the easiest way for a franchisee group to get organized is through us. And is there usually like one franchisee that takes the lead and then, you know, then he brings in other franchisees? Having leadership that are willing to, that have, that's one thing is the, the, the willingness. That person needs to be respected by his peers. Hopefully yeah. that, that leader is also respected by management. That makes a huge difference if the leaders of the group are happen to be the favorite franchisees in the system. Yeah. That, that it, it really expedites, put on, puts on steroids the ability to get from point A to point B. Uh, but identifying leadership that are willing to roll up their sleeves and do the hard work of, of leading the association um, is critical to success. And when we, don't, when we can't find leaders and we, when we can't sustain leaders, those chapters are going to fail. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, Robert, it was a pleasure to have you on today. I'll be sure to have a link to the Amazon um, for your book, The Franchise Fraud, as well as a link to the AAFD uh, for those that are interested in potentially starting a chapter. Um, but Robert, really appreciate having you on today. Well, I, I uh, greatly appreciate the opportunity and, uh, and good luck to you. I think the work that you're doing is very vital and very important. So. Uh, appreciate it thank you again i hope you enjoyed today's podcast episode you can leave us a review if you enjoyed the podcast episode if you hated the podcast episode let us know what you thought as well as what future episodes you'd like to hear feel free also to drop me a line at patrick at vettedbiz.com and subscribe please to our youtube channel business and franchise opportunities by vetted biz this has been franchise findings podcast thanks for listening